Hello and welcome to Thoughts on the Hoops. My name is Laura Bradburn and in the first of a new series I am joined by a fellow Celtic supporter who um, occupies this fan media space. Um, The point of this series being to delve a little bit deeper into that supporter's Celtic supporting history and see what what memories they have of the club, what kind of uh, things they remember as significant moments being a Celtic supporter and how they came to love the club that we all do. Uh, my first guest to do that today is Jared from Celtic Down Under, who I know many of you will know. Jared, how you doing? Yeah, pretty good, Laura. How are you doing? I'm doing good. I think I'm doing better than you. If the pre if the pre recording uh, conversations ended to go by, you had your work Christmas night out last night. I think. Nah, that was last. That was last weekend. But we did have some drinks and stuff after finishing up for the year. So um, yeah, a little, little bit of been better, but up and about. Here we go. A little bit tender. I will. Listen, if Australians and Scots can't get through a, a chat with a hangover, then I don't know who can. Maybe the Irish, they're the only other ones, but we'll, we'll see how we go. There's two things Australians and Scottish people have in common, better than anyone else in the world, it's use of the, the C word and drinking. Yeah, well, we'll keep, Well, I was going to say we'll keep it to the one, we'll maybe not keep it to either on this podcast, but we'll see how it goes. Uh, don't tell me what's in that cup, by the way. <laughs> what a thing to with you. <laughs> He said not too, but too bad. <laughs> so um, I just wanted to start with saying, like, I've I've appeared on, you've been very gracious uh, to have me on, on your podcast on Celtic Down Under. We've appeared together on A Celtic State of Mind. Um, but we've only ever really been talking about Celtic and what's happening at Celtic at that current moment. And obviously when Ange Postacoglu was appointed, um, you guys had a lot of inside knowledge, which we'll talk about a bit later on. But I've never had the chance to ask you kind of how you became a Celtic supporter, uh, how how you came across the club, whether you've got any family ties. So what's your sort of earliest memories of Celtic and where did where did this kind of obsession with Celtic come from? It's, um, it's the stock standard answer, basically, across the board, family. It's... Um, yeah. Family background is predominantly Scottish with um, some people from down southwest Ireland making it up before, you know, all the criminals and that all got deported over to Australia back in the day. So my family goes right back over into that sort of that sort of thing. But And then immigrants and stuff from there, so over to Australia. But, yeah, the majority of my Scottish families all spread out between Dundee and Aberdeen up on that coast and then um, got a few down near Glasgow as well and then the rest of my family history is from over in Cork, that wow. sort of in Galway sort of area. So I've got got a bit of a family background over in two areas that um, tie into the club very closely. Family background is that. Then you've got the whole... Catholic background growing up in that sort of a family. And then on top of that, I've got my um, my granddad was born in Scotland and moved over here when he was two months old and it was passed down to him. And then he passed it. He, I wouldn't necessarily say passed it down to us. I'd say more like he had, he kept an eye on it from afar. And then, you know, when I was getting into it growing up, when I was younger, it was, oh, who, who's your team? And I said, oh, I really like Celtic. And he goes, and I was bonded over that. And that was probably when I was maybe, I don't know, maybe f- 
five or six or something like that. He had a shed in his backyard doing woodworking and that for a hobby and be building tables and chairs to sell at the local, like at fe festivals, markets, whatever. And yeah, he'd just come home and we'd be in the shed just talking. And next thing you know, it's like, I say, enjoying soccer. Yep. And then we just go from there. So yeah, that's pretty much it in a nutshell, basically. I wasn't yeah, going I mean, to games like all you people over there, you lucky <laughs> lot. It's a little bit hard to get from this side of the world over. But anyway. Yeah, we'll talk, we'll talk a little bit about that because uh, not so not so far in the past you did get a chance to see, see Celtic live and we'll talk a little bit about that. Um, but so, I mean, that's incredible. I mean, very much like... Like somebody from Scotland and somebody from Glasgow, you're just you just sound like you were immersed in it, and and that's that's how a lot of people get obsessed with Celtic. Can you remember like the first time you saw a game on TV or anything like that? What kind of time period that would have been? Without giving your age away, obviously. <laughs> Let's just say I'm of the age where growing up there wasn't much success for the club. There you go. You right. Okay. Yeah, the 90s was when I started watching games. So, yeah, it was um, actually watching games live over here. It's so much easier now than it used to be mm -hmm. because of things like, you know, with the internet and streaming and all that sort of stuff. But, yeah, we used to not be able to see games live. You get the occasional, and I can say it because it was that back then, we get the occasional old firm games shown over here but it would usually be shown on like SBS. So that's like a state broadcasting service, similar sort of thing, like a BBC sort of thing you got over there. It was like own, you got ABC and SBS. And SBS had all of the um, all the, the football soccer games on it, whether it was the Italian league, it had the EPL once that started, it had the odd old firm game shown on there, some Spanish football, whatever. And they just show like highlights packages every week. But then, so that was how you'd mainly follow it as a kid. You'd watch a highlight package and you'd get like a five-minute burst of what happened in Scotland this week and then show a little bit of replays or highlights of the goals, that sort of thing, and that's it. And then you'd occasionally get the the old firm game would be shown, but it wouldn't be shown live. It would be recorded and then put onto our time over here. Like, I think it would be like on a Sunday at like, no, I don't know, like 5 p.m. or something like that. So you'd come home, you'd put the game on, Dad'd fire up the Barbie or whatever, cook up some food, and then you'd you'd sit around, and you'd watch the game, and that was pretty much it. Yeah, it was pretty that's a, that, that sounds all right to me. That sounds all right to me. So, how did you how did you sort of, I guess, uh, keep on top of the news apart from seeing the games? Was it very much just like kind of getting whatever scraps you could? Because obviously, if you're talking about the nineties, the, the internet was like very much in its infancy. It wasn't. Uh, wasn't the way it is now you probably didn't have to do much to avoid hearing the score and stuff like that before you watch the game or whatever depends what time we're looking at laura because okay if we go in the 90s like early 90s like i'm gonna go early 90s for my age so probably when i was about 10 so we're looking at 10 through to 13 14 sort of age the only way you'd find out the results was through that tv show that i was talking about like once mm -hmm. a week yes and that was it but usually they, those results in that, that show would potentially be a week behind. Right. So we could play a derby the, the, like the week before, whatever the result is, you're like, okay, I don't know what the result's going to be. That game was played a week ago and now I'm finding out 
well, there's another game happening overnight in the UK. So it was always awkward. Then when I got a bit older, I got into high school and got a bit of money myself from just working, whatever, I signed up, got birthday money one year from both sets of grandparents. And I went down to the, um, the news agents and I signed up for, there was a newspaper called um, British Football Week. Okay. And you get that every, like, and that had come out every week, right? And I signed up and subscribed to that. So every Tuesday I had to go down to the post office, show my ID and pick up my, my subscription that had come in. And I get that. And that was how I stayed on top of it. And I get the results before that highlight show. So we'd play on the weekend. Tuesday, I'd pick up the paper and I'd have all the updates and it would have all the EPL results. It'd have the League One in England. It'd have all the lower tiers. It'd have Scott, Scottish Premier League. It would have everything else. And I'd have an article written up on every game, different players, different goals, I think, in the Scotland section. So that's how I'd stay on top of it. Wow. So that was the main thing. And then... As I got a little older, again, and got to like 16, I think I was 16 years old, was the youngest I was allowed to. I joined the Melbourne number one CSC here. And that made it so much more fun. I actually felt that sense of community for the first time being a Celtic fan out with my family. Like, you have a look at it. It's like you get the local paper. Great. Or you get, sorry, you had the highlights. Then you go to your, your British Football Week, which was great. But then... These guys, on top of that, you have your highlight show. So you still have all that to watch and follow the games. But then the CSC was a whole nother level. It was once a month you'd come together and they'd have someone in, in Scotland recording all the games off the TV onto VHSs. And then they'd be sent over. And then we'd wow. all get together on the weekend and you'd just have a whole day at the pub sitting there, underage, you know, you'd be on the soft drinks, whatever, having chips, just having a – you know, a bit of a, just a day at the pub, whatever. And you just watch the game. So but all right, this was our first game of the month. Bang, what's your game is Dundee. Then here's a game against Killy. Then here's a game against Aberdeen. Oh, here's the Derby. And you watch them in full and you just come out and you're like, ah, oh, and you start to actually start relating to these players and seeing, starting to put together who are these guys on the field? How do they move? How do they position themselves? What's the tactics that we're playing? And you can actually start to understand it by seeing, bunch of game game after game after game after game off these VHSs that you weren't getting on that five-minute highlights package on SPS or you weren't getting – you were getting the tactical stuff and you were hearing about these players in British Football Week, but you weren't getting to see all of that knowledge. So it was once that started, I got really into it again, took it to another level. Wow. I mean, to, to go back a step, like you said that the the – the supporter group was when you really started to feel part of a community. So I, I imagine before that, obviously you know this far better than me, but like, you know, you're in a country where I imagine even nowadays, even with the A-League and stuff like that, soccer is pretty far down the the totem pole in terms of sports. Everybody over there, I guess, cricket would be near the top, rugby, um, Australian football, like... um and those kind of games so did you did you feel like you were a bit of an outcast because you were into soccer or was it like was it growing in popularity at the same time as you were interested in it it was a bit of a strange one because like yeah you're right about the sporting landscape you've got cricket afl rugby league rugby union and so 
soccer slash football would be probably battling for fifth position along with basketball mm. in terms of in terms of like the the pro the professional sort of level. But at the same time, basketball and, and soccer are the two highest participation sports in Australia across the board. So you're not really at that age that I was at at the time. I probably wouldn't have been the. I didn't feel like much of an outsider, if that makes sense, because mm. I was playing basketball because of the height and everything. But I was, but then to get a break from that, I was into my soccer or football. I keep calling it soccer because back then in Australia they had the National Soccer League. So mm-hmm. growing up, it was, it was soccer. And plus, you got four different football codes. So over here, it gets a little confusing if you're talking to everyone going, "Yeah, football, football, football," like that. It's yeah, just yeah. What you're talking about. So. Yeah, it was wasn't really an outsider. It was just you didn't see many people walking around wearing soccer shirts all the time. Mm. Didn't walk around seeing, you know, people weren't talking about it like they do now. It's so much more visible now than it was back in the in the late nineties, early two thousands. Let's let's say that. Yeah, I I I think that's to be honest. I think that's the case for for football or soccer the world over. It's like. It was already on the rise in, in Australia even back in those days, but like it's now entering territories where it wasn't even a thing at all, and so it's only going to get bigger wherever it was before. So that's that's fair enough. Um, I'm going to go on a tangent here for a second, Laura. Go for Just it. So go you- for it. So the old NSL is basically you had your just for context. You had it was founded in like the late seventies, early eighties. And it was all the um, basically were sporting clubs for a lot of the immigrants. So you had South Melbourne, where Ange is from, which is where all the Greeks were. You had Melbourne, Croatia, obvious people. You had Springvale White Eagles, which was all the Serbian community. You had, and you had multiple clubs from these communities. You had Italian clubs. You had Greeks, more Greek clubs in South Melbourne. So you had all of those guys. So it was a good way for them to come together, and keep their communities alive over here. But what was happening back in the motherland? So, as Andrew said, he felt more involved at South Melbourne than he did in the general population of Australia because Australia is such a melting pot of so many different nationalities and that sort of thing. So, pretty much everyone over here is an immigrant or comes from someone immigrating, unless you're yeah. Aboriginal. So, for that reason, the NSL was, in my opinion, there was a lot of issues with finances of the clubs. There was a lot of issues with like clashes between supporters because of ethnic identity. And that's why they stopped it and got rid of it eventually. But in terms of the actual football on the pitch and that these were actual proper clubs where they had their youth academies, they had their under eights or under tens or under twelves and players would come through the system I felt like that was a much better system in Australian football and Australian soccer for developing players. And that's where we got that first golden generation that did well in the 2006 World Cup for us in Germany, where you had like your Vadukas, your Harry Kuehl, you had guys like Stan Lazaridis, Lucas Neal, uh, Brett Emerton, rattling off a few others here. So, and that, that system was what developed them. That system is also what developed Scott McDonald over here before he moved over to over for youth and youth at a club. I think he went to Southampton, if my memory's right. Mm. But that system for development was so much better. 
but you could walk down the street and you wouldn't oversee any one of those those club, someone walking around wearing those clubs shirts or you would very rarely hear about it in the media over here unless someone was um you know there'd been a clash between or flares thrown at each other in the crowd or there'd been you know certain chants or you know some sort of racial element had happened in the background so it was pretty much the way the media coverage towards football soccer was over here was oh that's the troublesome as they called it wogs over here let's just let them play their their wog ball and you can sit over there and stay in the background and that was the the way it was portrayed Mm. now what they did was they split it off so it's they shut that league down for a couple of years did a review and then launched the a-league you see Mm. people walking around wearing a-league club shirts over here all the time now so i don't know whether that's a lot more people wear, wear, wearing soccer shop t- shirts or tops or whatever in general over here, mm. or that's a lot more visible with the TV coverage and with everything. But the actual quality of the football is better now across the board. There's not as many clubs and the de- development pathways are rubbish compared to what they used to be. It's, it's fascinating to hear that, like, you know, when you actually think about it, the you know, as somebody who's not Australian, but like when you put it together like that, the the massive immigrant communities of various types that are in Australia, it makes sense that they would gravitate towards a sport that's so massive back in their in their motherland, as you put it. Like, um, I don't understand this um, fighting about things other than football. I don't. I don't. Uh, don't. That's not familiar to me, being from Scotland. You know, but. Uh, <laughs> It's um, it's it's just fascinating to hear a whole like footballing culture that's grown and expanded, and something that you've been able to observe in real time throughout your lifetime. You know, like back here, um, in Scotland, like football's been around here since like my granddad's years was when it first started becoming like a serious professional game. So like it was it was very much well in existence by the time I was around. Um, so for you to have seen it go from a relatively minor sort of probably amateur sport to the professional sport that it is now is is incredible. Um, but to, to to go back to like Celtic and and your your memories of Celtic and 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 being a supporter, <clears throat> did you um did you gravitate to any one player or any one manager or any person in particular in those early years that that you remember sort of admiring uh and and still feeling nostalgic about to this day it's funny because i don't really remember gravitating towards one particular player you know they're my favorite until larson come to the club right but then that that's com that's pretty common but that's because like as i was saying it was about the players from those little highlights things you'd see or what you'd read or whatever, but there's one player that I just have this irrational dislike for from when I was when I was younger, and I just can't shake it to this day. Like, even if I met the guy and I'd see him, I just don't like John Collins. I just don't. I don't know why. There was really? just something about him because my favourite growing up was um, was what's his name? Paul McStay. He was my yes. first favourite. He was my first favourite. He was the one I got into, and then Larson was an escalation on top of that in the fanboy status, right? <laughs> but so you had McStay. He was the my my favourite. 
but I just didn't like what's his name. I did not like John yeah, Collins. Yeah, John Collins at all. I don't know why. It just grates me, and I don't even like talking about him. Do you know it's it's one of those weird things because I think especially with Scottish players, you kind of expect whether they go to Celtic or to Rangers or to whatever club that they're going to um, have that club get under their skin and become a Celtic man through and through um, for the rest of their career or the rest of their lives. And I think John Collins, like people might roast me in the comments for this, but I think he's one of those ones that he, he came to Celtic because we were one of the best teams in the country at the time and he was one of the best players, but I don't think the club ever got under his skin the way it does with other players and, and I think maybe that's affected his maybe standing amongst um the Celtic support. I mean there's no there's no denying the quality of the guy, but I do get kind of what you mean about maybe as a person he just didn't click with you as a Celtic supporter in that way. Yeah, it's probably what it was to be honest with you. Like yeah, I hadn't even thought of it at that level. It's just as a kid, I just didn't like him. I just mm. good player. I get I'll give credit on that. I, he's a good player, but I just could, didn't like the way he played his football and the way he carried himself and everything. I don't know what it was. It was just I'm probably going to cop it in the comments too over this, but whatever. I'm big enough, ugly enough. You won't be the first person that's like told me I'm wrong. So whatever, we we roll with it. But, yeah. But I've seen like over the years, I've got other people over here that I've met it. And people that I spoke to that they were the same with um, Pierre Van Hoydonk, for instance. Yeah, yeah. People who like that with him, he was one of those guys that he's at the club for a little while. He didn't have, didn't get under his skin to the same level that it did with other people. And like they have a similar sort of viewpoint when you talk about like, oh, I don't really like John Collins for I don't know why. And like, yeah, I was the same with Big Pierre, or I was the same with, um, and I just rattle off a couple of others. But yeah, I don't want to go into too many of it. But yeah. It's it's funny, like when I, because I'm I'm a very big like, I talk a lot about how much they love I love the three amigos, which was um Van Hoydonk, Cadet, and Decano, and then Andreas Tom was in that team as well. And the reason I talk about it so much is because the age and stage I was at, they were just like exciting heroic footballers. I wasn't the type. Obviously, at nine, ten years old, you're not paying attention to. Um, how they treat the fans or whether they're being difficult with their contract negotiation or whether they're trying to hold out for a move for more money like that didn't feature in my like view of them as a player so I still love them to this day even though the adult part of my brain goes yeah they didn't they didn't treat the club really brilliantly and they maybe left earlier than they should have or left for the wrong reasons for going for more money even though they were going to maybe smaller clubs and stuff but you can't help what your opinion and attitude is on somebody when you're like too young to know otherwise really hey childhood heroes like what can you you can't fault that like it makes perfect sense yeah yeah no i, I listen if you if you um if you changed your opinion based on everything that you read on Twitter, you'd be changing your opinion every day. So I don't think, and I don't think either of us are a stranger to to that. My mum had a good saying, Laura, was if you change your opinion, like look what you're saying, you'd be changing your opinion more than you're changing your underwear. Yeah, well. 
that was a saying I grew up with, and it sums up perfect that like if I had to agree with Twitter people, I'd be like changing it every 20 minutes. It's yeah, cesspit on there sometimes. Yeah. As you're well aware. I am well aware this podcast would not exist if it weren't for the cesspit that is Twitter, but there you go. Maybe maybe this is a good thing that can emerge from it. We'll see. We'll see. Um one thing I wanted to talk to you a little bit about. Uh, before we go into like obviously going to the Sydney Cup and your attendance there was we've seen in recent months at the time we're recording this and Postacoglu has been manager at Tottenham for just coming up to the six month mark still getting over it it's it's hurting me to this day but you know it's kind of I was very aware of Celtic supporters kind of taking the moral high ground when people down in England were saying who's this guy and we don't know who he is and we don't know what he's about and slagging him off and all that and I was kind of thinking well that was us two years ago what was it like for you being a Celtic supporter seeing other Celtic supporters at the time that Anne's joined kind of writing the guy off when you already knew what we all know now about how good he is and what he could possibly do that must have been you must have been tearing your hair out of that Super frustrating. It's probably the easiest way to sum up. I'm sitting there going, um, what it gave me the vibes of was when Arsene Wenger joined Arsenal mm-hmm. from Japan. It took me back to that when I was a kid. Like, because I got a few mates growing up who were Arsenal fans and they were just like bagging him out and all this sort of stuff. And it just gave me that sort of vibes. Like it they over here, as I said on the time when I went on to Axom and that sort of thing, you had on SBS, we had a show called The World Game, and that was the main spiel they had for football, soccer, whatever you call it, wherever you're from. It's The World Game. That's what unites it. That's why it's such a big sport. And it was just like, what? I'm trying not to swear. <laughs> what, what gave me, what irritated me, there we go, what irritated me the most was that you had people going, and post got no clue and stuff like that. Yeah. And then there yeah. was that idiot um, on there, and absolutely not good enough. And I'm just like, you guys don't know what the hell you are talking about. It was the perfect man. We we actually had in our in the Celtic Down Under Facebook group, right? I put in there, who do you want to be the Celtic manager? And there's this um, stand up comedian over here, Danny McKinley. I'll give him mm-hmm. full credit, a shout out here. He went on there and said, Oh, it's got to be Ange. He'd be perfect for the job. And he said that about two and a half months before we were even linked. Mm. So I'll all credit to Danny there. I laughed at his response and said, no chance that had happened. Like the Celtic board would take the blinkers off and look that far afield. That was my response. Yeah, yeah. So Danny called it two and a half months before it happened. He was the only person that I know of that actually went there and said it and, and claimed it. But he was spot on with what we needed. And I agree with him from that moment on. I'm like, if I went in for Ange, he would be perfect. I've seen him rebuild South Melbourne because one of my mates growing up was a great guy. I lived around the corner from me, go to South Melbourne game. So, so I was seeing Ange back in 96 what, through 98 at South Melbourne. I saw what Ange did at Brisbane Raw. I saw what he did at Melbourne Victory, which is my local A-League club, where he set us up for like premiership success. I saw what he did with the Socceroos. And then what he did in Japan, I'm like, he's a builder. He comes mm. in, 
he tears tears it down, gets the guys playing his way, and it was exactly what we wanted. So to then see got people in Scotland going, who is this guy being so disrespectful? That's why I got an axe. I'm like, I was sitting there one day watching, and I was a couple of guys on there who were no longer on the channel, and they were like full on tearing into him, and they've been super disrespectful in terms of not even trying, even trying to learn how to pronounce his last name. Like mm. that's just basic common sense and basic courtesy, and there was none of that. And then what they were saying was absolutely wrong. So then I messaged Paul while I was saying, "Do you want to get an Australian's opinion on this?" Like, <laughs> and then boom, I've been like linked with Axon going on there on and off sporadically ever since. But it's like for me, it was just so frustrating seeing that sort of mindset. But then you roll it forward two years, like you saw Laura, and you've got people down in England saying the same things and. I was just, I just found it absolutely comedic gold having a look at everyone in Scotland going, oh, Angie's the best, and this is blah blah blah, and all, all that sort of stuff. Doing the same things that I was doing two years earlier, well, it was just, it was just funny to see. Yeah, I was. It was one of the few times in my life I have kept my counsel, like, and I really didn't slag the guy off because I thought, okay, I don't know anything about him, but. I doubt that he's got even got into the room for the interview for the Celtic job without there being some merit to him being there. And then I read his um his book, I think it's called Changing the Game or something like that. But I mean, you only need to read the first three chapters of that book to to know like, oh my god, this guy's so on it and like so knows what he's talking about. And even outside of the whole football thing, just his values and his general um appreciation of of certain social and and sort of societal factors that are so in keeping with like what Celtic is as a football club. There was people there was people who I was just like begging to go, would you just like give give his book a chance, give him a chance, and I bet you'll see like that he's just exactly what we need. And like you said, he did he did become that. Like I, I think he don't get me wrong, there's there's aspects of, of the way that he left that I think he probably could have handled a little bit better, but I think also he was at pains to like just act professionally in that sense. He wasn't going to say he was leaving if it wasn't tied up and he wasn't going to say he was staying if he didn't think he absolutely was. So you're caught kind of between a rock and a hard place in that way. But He's one of the few people that I would say, like, I don't know what Ronnie Dial is doing these days. I don't really know what Gordon Strachan's doing these days. I never followed Vim Janssen or Josef Venglos or anything like that with any great interest after they finished up as a Celtic manager. But, like, I know for a fact that until the day now where Ange Postacoglu retires, I'll be watching whatever teams he's in charge of because... He just plays football in a way that I think's amazing. Um, did you? Did it mean anything to you specifically that it was an Australian in charge of the club? Did it? Because sometimes I think people assume that that's something that you'll be, you'll feel a connection with. But I don't. I've never actually asked an Australian person whether whether it did make a huge difference to them or not. It's. It's going to sound weird because like everyone kind of thinks that, oh, you're just super, you're going to go for Celtic because of Ange. And when Ange left, 
we cop some people just random stuff saying, oh, so it's going to be uh, Tottenham, Tottenham down under instead or Spurs <laughs> down under. You're going to change your whole podcast. And I'm like, dude, the podcast been around three years before Ange was even here. Yeah. So yeah. it's got, that's my, but the thing with Ange was he wasn't my preferred candidate coming into the club because I didn't think, that, as I said, I didn't think the club would look that far afield and give him a chance. He's a world-class manager. He's, I'm like you, Laura, I want to see him do well no, no matter where he is. But I wasn't shocked that he left when he did because he goes, oh, you'll be surprised how long I'm at the club. And I'm thinking, he's not going to be for five years like everyone's talking. <laughs> the shelf life and the way he is at a club is two to three years. So he's perfect. was bang on with what he would normally do. He'd come in, set things up, win a bit, get some trophies and leave. So if we hadn't have won the trophies in the first season, he probably would probably still have him this year because he'd be into his third year because he wants to stay in success for a couple of years. But because that happened, it didn't surprise me that he left. Do, do you think he, just to jump in on that, do you think he made that comment about you'd be surprised how long I'm here? Do you think he maybe thought, I'm only going to leave Celtic for a really top-tier job and I don't think I'm going to get offered a really top-tier job, so maybe I'll be at Celtic for a while? Is that... Do you think that's maybe what he's thinking was? Well, what he said had a double meaning, didn't it? Mm. You can look at it the way you just said, but you can look at it the way I said it. So it all depends how. So it was very, he was, that's one thing with Ange, very clever with his words. Mm. And he slapped media down and was always clever with his words. And it was like, it could have been that. But the thing is, I could never see him when he was linked to go to Everton, for instance, after the Sydney Super Cup. I'm like, he's not going to Everton. Oh, he can go to West Ham. He's not going to West Ham. If he's going to leave us, he's going to go to a big club because that's the thing, the way he's always done things. He's going to go South Melbourne, one of the biggest clubs in the NSL. Celtic, big club. Melbourne Victory has the biggest supporter base in the A-League. Um, Brisbane were, was the only one there. And then um, yeah, pretty much and then Japan, those two clubs weren't big clubs. But he always loves a big job. So I was looking, if he was going to leave us, he wasn't going to go for some team like Brighton or team like Everton or whatever. He was it was going to be have to be some top top team. So to see him go to Tottenham, which sucks because I don't like them much at all because of because <laughs> of friends who are Spurs fans and I just don't like them. But yeah, like for him, I would like he'd be a perfect candidate in my opinion if Klopp was to retire. I know he grew up a Liverpool fan. That'd probably be his dream job. Mm. And if Jürgen moved on. He went in there. That's the sort of thing. Like, I'm no, there's no chance he's going to go from Celtic to Liverpool. Let's be honest. This yeah. isn't the nineties anymore, or whatever. It works the other way around with Brendan Rodgers up the road. But he was never going to get that move. But he was going to go to a bigger club. So the fact that he got one of the traditional top six teams in England straight from Celtic was a massive deal, in my opinion. So I can't blame him for taking the job. Yeah, I I fully agree. Like I think. You know, there's if you're talking about truly top tier clubs in England, there was only a couple that were going to fit that: Arsenal, Liverpool, Man United, maybe Chelsea. Um, what gave, Man well, yeah, <laughs> well, but but I mean, he was in the City Group in Japan. If Pep moved on, yeah, well, there's there's that as well. But like, I, I could see him backing himself to think, no, I can go in and sort out Man United, and what better way to bring them back than than that way? But like, yeah, yeah no, I think he, I think he, I think the the 
the project at Tottenham probably did a lot for him. The fact that they've got this brand new training ground, brand new stadium, all this money, like even the challenge of he, regardless of what he said when he first came in, I think he probably knew he was going to be without Harry Kane and and all that stuff. He probably just saw it as like a pure mouth watering challenge, which is fair enough. Um, and after one, just hope to see him see him go a lot further. Um, t- taking it back to Celtic, you mentioned the Sydney Cup. Um, which I believe now was about a year ago because was it not around like yeah. November, December, or just yeah, just into the new year or whatever that um they 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 came over came over your neck of the woods to to play a few games. Um, how many of the games did you manage to get to, and like what was it what was it like seeing Celtic in the flesh? Was that the first time you'd seen them in the flesh? That was the other thing I was going to ask you. I don't even know if. You've been to Glasgow or whatever? No, I haven't been over for a game. The only times I've seen Celtic play was 2011. They were under Neil Lennon. Mm-hmm. Um, and we played Central Coast Mariners. That's where they saw Tom Rogic for the first time and then scouted him and gave him a trial off the back of that. And they played Melbourne Victory. Got a funny story about that game as well. But, yeah, so I saw them back in 2011. And then I hadn't seen them play live in the flesh until the Sydney Super Cup last year. So it was like, I'd say like 11 years. So mm. it was it had been a, been a while between drinks. But, yeah, it's um, the things you do. But I, I just laughed before when you said, oh, they had in my neck of the woods. And I'm like, let's get a map of Australia and put it over Europe. I, I, knew, I knew as soon as I said that, I was like, it's more your neck of the woods than it normally is, but I'm aware that Australia is massive, also. Yes, massive. Yeah. Now it's funny though. I just had I had a chuckle. I just find it amusing when people do that at work as well, and I'm just like, put a map over the top. Come on now. Now it's about a thousand kilometers north from where I live to Sydney, so yeah. it's you know pretty much a whole day driving if you're going to drive up there or you know get on the plane or whatever. But no, it's good. I went up for the. Because of work, I couldn't get up for the midweek game against uh, Sydney, which was probably a good thing because I heard that was a bit of a shocking game in terms of how we played. The disappointing thing about that trip is I got up there on Saturday morning and pretty much all the merch was sold out already. They didn't bring anywhere near enough over. Oh, really? Really? Oh. My, my thing was all I wanted from last year's tops, I thought they were all pretty average. The only one I wanted was the black one with the green stripes, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The only size they have available, extra small. I'm like, it's not going to oh, happen when you're when you're like when you're like six foot three and you know, hundred plus <laughs> kilos as you, and with long with long ass arms. You need big sizes, and yeah, extra small might wrap around my arm and shoulder. That's about it. <laughs> so, so there was. No merch. They had they had hats for sale, but they didn't have them in all the merch things at the game. So when we went to the Everton game, you're out at um Olympic Park in Sydney, which is massive eighty thousand seat stadium. I was there a couple of weeks ago actually, and it was the same situation. It's always filthy hot out there because there's not much airflow. There's no not much coverage for you where you sit in your seats, and the sun just beats on you, and it's just bricks and stuff everywhere outside the stadium. So it's like I think that was about a 28, 29 degree day and just sitting in the sun watching Celtic play. And I was like, watching the football was the best because I'm like, oh, that's 
that's Jota. Like you see him on TV and you know how they run and how they move to then actually go, hang on, he's not on a screen. He's like 10 metres away from me over there. Yeah, how good yeah. is this? So stuff like that, it was just amazing to see the boys back out here again. And oh, Memory that will live with me forever. It's, it's crazy to hear you talk about that and talk about the effort that you went to to follow the team and the fact that you've only managed to see them in the flesh twice in all that time and yet your your desire to follow them and to be a supporter hasn't waned like it must be frustrating for you to hear I know it's frustrating for me as somebody who has had a season ticket and doesn't currently have one to hear this constant debate and this constant gatekeeping online of people saying doesn't even go to the games doesn't even this doesn't even that like as somebody who I would argue probably puts more into following Celtic than a lot of people that go to the games every week, how does it make you feel to hear people sort of discuss it in that way? Oh, if they want to pay my, my two and a half grand return flights every weekend to go over to Glasgow, I'm happy to do that. <laughs> and, you know, do that in the 24 hours each way flying. Yeah, happy to. But, <laughs> but um, I just find that a ridiculous thing because – who are you? The first thing I think of is don't tell me how to support my team and don't tell me that you have a right to tell me that I'm not a fan. Mm. I've probably been following the club longer than some of these people making those comments have been alive. Mm. And just because you're lucky enough to live five, ten minutes down the road and can get to every game and I'm on the other side of the world doesn't make me less of a fan than you. Yeah. The fact over here, and I'm, this is me going off right now, and this is me taking up the back for every Celtic fan around the world who can't get to games. Okay, I get up at I get up at two a.m. on a Sunday night, Monday morning when I've got work. I got up for work at six a.m. I get up at two a.m. to watch the games weekly. I'll stay up and watch the games, Champions League games. I get up early and watch them before going to work. I know guys in America who do the same thing. They'll get up early, they'll watch games, then they'll go to work, or they'll work all day and then they'll do it. I've got a mate of mine in New Zealand who is a tradie. So he has the games on his Celtic TV on his iPad while he's working because, you know, that's the only way you can actually watch the games. You've got so much going on and it's so much easier for us everywhere in the world now with Celtic TV and streaming and all this stuff to watch the games. But that doesn't mean just because we're not in the stadium where only 60,000 people can fit and we've got a million-plus worldwide support if you put add up all the social media channels and that together, we can't all fit into the stadium. Hmm. So that doesn't mean that, oh, as a club, we're limited to only having only having sixty thousand actual fans because that's all we that can fit in the stadium. That mindset is the sort of mindset that made the team plays out of Ibrox die the first time, in my opinion. That gatekeeping and going, we're the only true fans. That's that sort of mindset. Put that to the side and look globally. We are one of the biggest supported clubs in the world out with the top five leagues in Europe. Mm. Probably are the biggest. So I'd say us or maybe River Plate or Boca Juniors or Colo Colo, those sort of clubs in South America. I'd put us in that sort of tier. We got fans in Korea, Japan, all through Thailand, Malaysia, that are all doing the same thing I'm doing, getting up and watching games. You've got the guys in America, Canada, 
doing that. You've got fan supporter clubs in Papua New Guinea. You've got supporter clubs in South America. You've got supporter clubs in Africa who are all doing the same thing, getting up and watching at, at stupid o'clock. We've spoken to a supporters club on our podcast years ago based in India who get up and watch games. We are yeah. everywhere. And it is magical that we are everywhere. We're such a big club. So that whole conversation of you don't go to games, you're not a true fan. You can kiss my ass if you think that's the truth because <laughs> that's, that's the way I look at it. If you're trying to tell me I'm not a true fan of this club and I've been following them, like I'm 41, I've been following the club since I was five. I've been following this club for 36 years from afar. I've seen them play live three times in my life because that's the only times I've been in Australia. The plan was to go to Scotland and watch games back in 2020. It's part of my trip to Europe. But the pandemic happened. Hmm. Still haven't. And then jobs got lost and stuff because of the pandemics and you work back up to where, okay, I'm in a good job. I've got annual leave. I can now get there to go to a game. I'm potentially looking at being over there for the first time to watch a game in Scotland next year. Hmm. I finally got back to that spot where I can do this. So by you saying, oh, you're not a true fan because you're not in the stadium, bite me. <laughs> clip there's, that there's, up. Clip that there's, up. There's your clip, Laura. There's your clip. <laughs> no, I quite enjoyed that. I quite enjoyed that because I like I feel that way even as somebody who lives 20 minutes away from the stadium but has other commitments that I can't have a season ticket. But then to hear you talk about that and what you still put in to follow the club's absolutely amazing. It's and, and like you say, there's people all over the world. Your point about um Boca Juniors and River Plate and Colo and stuff like that, I, I think actually and listen, I, Alan Morrison would have me over a barrel here because I'm not gonna say this without any stats to back it up. But I think even as big as the followings of those clubs are, still the majority of the following of those clubs is in their respective countries I think where Celtic and some other teams excel Celtic especially is like you say you can rhyme off supporters clubs in India and in Papua New Guinea and Spain and Australia and Ireland and wherever and it and it it truly is worldwide so like I think that's a, a more than fair point um trying to bring it back to to present day um we will talk about the current situation we find ourselves in because I do want to get your thoughts on that I know you'll cover that on your podcast Celtic Down Under quite frequently but it would be good to get your thoughts on it but before we do that the day that we're recording this um, the Australian squad has just been announced for the Asian uh, for the Asian Cup in uh, in Qatar and Marco Tellio has been named in the squad now that in itself is is strange to me, just because he hasn't had um a lot of game time for Celtic. What what do you think's going on there? Because we we were very excited to see him coming over. We'd heard a lot from people who knew a lot more about the Australian game that he was, you know, a talent and he was going to be a major talent and he was going to take Scotland by storm. I know he came over with an injury that maybe hampered his, his arrival, but why do you think it's kind of maybe not working out as well for him as, as many people would have hoped? I think the biggest issue for him was just the timing of everything. Like 
he was injured the majority of last season playing through injuries. He had like a shoulder injury, then a hip injury, then a calf injury. And it was the calf injury that he carried over. He got injured at the World Cup and then he just carried on injury after injury after injury after that. And then he came over with the calf injury, got over, and then he's re-injured himself. Hmm. So the fact is that he's been had a bunch of injuries and then he's trying to do his rehab, move countries, re-injures himself, back to square one, misses a whole preseason. It's just dropped him further and further down the ranks. And I look at it and go, if you've got if your choices are you've got Mikey Johnson, and I'm not a fan, let's be honest. But if you've got Mikey Johnson, who's done a full preseason, has been training week in, week out for months on end, or you've got Tilio, who's just back in training, hasn't done a preseason, hasn't been able to play the full 90 minutes because of injuries since the World Cup. Who are you going to go with if you're in Rogers' situation? For me, mm-hmm. if you're going to come on as an impact sub for 20 minutes, I'd still rather it be Tilio. If you want someone to play the first 60 minutes because of the injury crisis that we've had, 60, 70 minutes, that's not going to be Tilio at the moment. And that's his issue. I said on our podcast, he's going to be a player for us. And I still hold to that. I did say before he re injured himself that if he's not a regular in the team, whether that's off the bench or that, by Christmas, I would wear a tiara on our podcast. I have pushed that, I have pushed that back to the end of the season. And I said that on our pod because of his injuries. I still stand by that he is going to be a player for us. So watch out for that. I might have to wear a tiara if he gets injured or goes on loan. So that could be interesting. Well, uh, we'll, uh, we'll need to we'll need to figure that out. That's that reminds me a little bit of the whole Gary Lineker thing. If if Leicester win the Premier League, he'll do match of the day in his pants, which he ended up having to do, uh, unfortunately, for the viewing public. Uh, but so, uh, yeah, yeah. So Tilio is like he's a quality player, one of the best young players to ever come out of the A-League. He's probably, I'll put him in the top probably four, four, four or five, honestly. You've got like Eric Kunda's coming out, going to Bayern Munich. You've got him. You've got, there's a couple of good quality keepers. Celtic, if you need a goalkeeper and you see this, Joe Gauchy at Adelaide United or Alex Polson at Wellington Phoenix, you could do a lot worse and look at them and the stats back up, at the, back them up at the top tier of what you need, saves-wise, distribution, everything. Check him out. But we push that to the side. Tilio is going to be a player for us. The problem he's got is how far down the chain he is because if he didn't get injured and then you got a Barters out hurt, Maeda's out hurt, that would have been an opportunity for him. Now, these guys are starting, oh, like Maeda's back, a Barter should be back in January. And then you look at it and go, who's also there? You've got Palmer, you've got Jamesy Forrest, you've got Yang, who's God knows how, what's going on there. So realistically, there's seven or eight when you put Tilio in there who could play in two spots. So mm. he's that far down the list and he doesn't have the fitness and there's no reserves league for him to play week in, week out to get his fitness up. So I think that's all part of the struggle for him. At least when he was over here, if he was in the A-League and he was injured, he was, like, he was able to come back and play through the, the youth league or whatever. So, yeah, I just think it's... um. It's not ideal. There's a player there, and I still back him to be amazing for us. But maybe he needs to go on a six-month loan elsewhere just to get some football into him, and then we just give him a fresh start again next season. It'll be interesting to see because, like you say, I I I think he's got potential, and I think he 
his ability and he's certainly that kind of player that from observing him has that kind of magic touch that can maybe open up defences and change games in a way that we don't really have another player that can do it at the moment. So I really hope that it comes good and, you know, you never know what kind of tournament he might have over in Qatar and, and what he might come back confidence-wise with that he can go to Brendan Rodgers and say, I'm ready, give me my shot. So it'll be interesting to see. Speaking of, of Brendan Rodgers... For a second, Laura, with the squad, I've just called, brought it up because I didn't actually touch on the World Cup Sorry, the Asian Cup thing for him. Yeah. I just want to say, I think he goes there and he plays and does well. This could be like what Moy was for us coming off the back of the World Cup last year where he was getting his fitness first half of the season, mm-hmm. went to the World Cup, and then was unbelievable for a second half of the season. I'm hoping we get the same for Tilio. But I'm looking at which other wingers that he's got there. And he's got Sam Silvera, who's ripping it up with, um, at Middlesbrough. And then he's got Martin Boyle and Craig Goodwin in front of him. So we all know Boyle from from Hibbs. And then Goodwin is one of the better young, well, he's young, he's 30-something now. He's playing in Saudi Arabia. So realistically, there's probably four wingers there. So it's a chance to actually play. Mm. And I think above all else, he needs match. He needs to get some match time and actually get some match fitness. So hopefully the Asian Cup helps him out. Yeah, I hope it does. And I'll certainly be looking out for... Um, I can't remember from from the the World Cup what the timings are like for over here, but I'll certainly be looking out for, um, for some of the games and seeing if I can if we can observe him in action if he gets a game because it would be good to see what he can do. Um, taking it back to Celtic to close out the conversation and the current situation we find ourselves in. Um, at the time of recording, we've had that loss at home to Hearts. We've we've struggled against. St Johnston uh, and Kilmarnock recently, amongst others, um, we've kind of let Rangers back into a title race. They should be nowhere near. Um, I have my own thoughts on Brendan Rodgers and the current situation. Um, but what are yours in terms of? You know, we've heard them talk about the lack of quality in the squad, and and there's been suggestions he's maybe not got who he wanted, but in terms of your opinion of Rodgers himself, how much of the blame do you think he needs to shoulder for the situation that we find ourselves in at the moment? I said on our pod that I think it's an accountability issue across the whole club, from recruitment to the board, to the manager, to the players. There's a lot of finger pointing going on in the blame game. So that's my overall general thing on why we are where we are but the old saying I grew up with when I was playing and then coaching state league basketball and stuff back in the day was it's if you win the games it's the players if you lose the games it's the coach Mm. so he needs to step up and take the brunt on this there's a lot of people out there who weren't happy that he came back me he wasn't my first choice he's probably the best candidate we could get in terms of you know his CV, but I wanted a continuity manager. So I wanted someone like Nudson to come down or Gallardo to come over, someone to keep the pressing game, which suited the players that we have at the club. To go from Ange's high-octane football to this turgid, slow pass, 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 passing that if you're watching a game at 3 a.m. in the morning, it's very boring and it's hard to like keep your eyes open for sometimes to watch mm-hmm. when – so I would have rather we went down that path instead of bringing in Rogers and just 
changing the whole game that we're playing. Now, I'm not blaming him 100%, but I'm saying he needs to do better. He needs to be, if you're going to be, there was no doubt Ange was the boss when he was at the club, right? The players knew it, recruitment knew it, everyone knew it. So if the recruitment, that the players you got in weren't the players that he wanted, then he needs to be the boss. But do it behind closed doors. Don't be in the media whinging all the time. Don't mm. do a Stephen Gerrard throwing players or throwing the board under the bus, okay? I'm not a board apologist, by the way, either. Check out this week. Pod just come out on Selling Down Under. You understand. But I'm I'm not a board apologist. I don't say if the recruitment's not good enough, deal with it behind closed doors. If the players aren't playing at the right level, deal with it behind closed doors. The issue I'm finding is that the style of football that we are playing does not suit the players we have. And everyone has him sussed with the way he plays and they're just sitting in a low block. And we just, we could have played that game on the weekend against Hearts and played another 90 minutes. And I don't think we would have scored. Hmm. It's just teams are sitting deep and they're making it hard for us to break down. At least when we were pressing the way we used to, and you'd, you try and thread a needle through on a pass. And if you lose it, you'd be on someone straight away and you'd rush them and you'd speed them up. They wouldn't get comfortable in the game at all for 90 minutes. And sometimes that chaos that that causes created chances. Mm. That's what we're missing this season. It's just that bit of aggression and that bit of speed. We seem just to, oh, yeah, we go through the process and go A, B, C, D, E, F, G, it's a goal. You're not doing that against these against these um, these low blocks. So it's got to be he needs to assess how we're playing. I think we need to speed up how we're playing and take more chances, but that's not the, the Rogers system. Yeah, I, th- I think you've hit the nail on the head, and I think I think the biggest um, example of what you're talking about, about the system not fitting the players that we have, is, is Kyogo. You know, the, the guy was rattling the goals in last season. He was, you know, people were uttering his name in the same breath as Henrik Larsson and rightly so in a lot of ways he had the quality that would suggest he was you know if not at that level certainly very much heading towards it and and this season I don't know what the record is but at the moment he's not he's not scored a goal for a number of weeks at the moment and it's just not like him very at all and um, I think like you say that the system is easily figured out by opposition and and you know the fear of Rodgers being back in the hot seat at Celtic that some of the clubs might have felt at the start of the season is gone now and we need to appreciate the fact that they don't feel intimidated by coming to to give us a go if if hearts can come when they've not been having a great season and take points off us there's no reason any other club in the league can't do it really to be honest so we just need to um and a six 0 victory over Aberdeen once in a while is not going to is not going to mask that for us. But it'll be interesting. It's going to be a busy festive period for us, and I think we'll need to we'll need to um, just batten down the hatches and see what we come out of here with. Uh, the The game on December thirtieth is not one I'm looking forward to. I have to say. <laughs> Actually, I'm not. I'm at. This is what I said on our pod, right? The next four games, so the festive fixtures are crucial. But if we win against Livy, we win against um, whoever the other is one it Dundee? is, Dundee. Yeah. Dundee. And if we win against St Mirren before the break, 
great. But if we don't do the business in the derby, those other points are irrelevant in the scheme of things. Mm. So if we're to lose any of those other games leading up to the derby, then send the alarm bells. But the derby is the most crucial one. And the only positive I can see is I can't see their manager coming in and setting up a low block at Celtic Park. He's going to come in and be like, I've got the players. I called him on our pod, uh, you know, Johnny Big Balls. He's going to walk in thinking he's a big man on campus going, strutting in like, I'm this Belgian footballing god and this is how we play, blah, blah, blah. And he's going to, they're going to come in and they're going to think, oh, yeah, we're going to put a marker down. We're going to smash Celtic. That's what they're going to think, right? Yeah. So he's going to come in. They're going to be aggressive. You can't polish a turd. with, And some of the players that he has there are steaming piles of it. So <laughs> they're going to come in and they're going to open the pitch up. And that's the sort of game where I think a Kyogo or a Maeda could cause some absolute chaos on them going the other way. So we might actually see Celtic, the Celtic of old from last season or whatever, come to the fore and play. The question I have is, are we going to take our chances? Because if you've been in bad form for so long and you've got Kyogo clutching at shots that he just one touch put away the last couple of seasons and you've got midfielders out of form and you and Greg Taylor getting targeted to, by week in, week out by tall wingers, stuff like that, how are we going to perform? And that's the thing. Like They're going to open the pitch up. It's going to be there, there for the taking. Are we good enough to get the to convert our chances because we're creating a hell of a lot, but we're getting nothing from it. Are we going to suddenly be able to flick that switch and bang in the goals? I hope so because that game is vitally important. If we do not, if like a draw is probably, if we win the other three and draw, hmm, but we've got to win. Hmm. We win that derby, okay, it is on. It could be the launching place to get the break, get players in, get players out, and we go again. But looking at it, I don't know. Are we going to take our chances? Well, uh, here's hoping, here's hoping. Uh, we'll know in a matter of weeks from now. Well, not a matter of weeks, less than a week from now, where, where we're at with it and uh, we'll just have to we'll just have to see where we're at. Um, Jared, I want to say thank you very much for you two for coming on the pod. I think it's been a really interesting conversation. I hope people will have heard a little bit more about your Celtic supporting background that they maybe didn't know before and it'll maybe prompt them to go and check out your coverage along with the other guys on Celtic Down Under. It is really a cracking, cracking podcast. I've I've spent a lot of time talking Celtic with you and with Liam Carrigan, who also appears on, on there frequently as well. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of other good contributors who, who some of the people uh, watching this maybe wouldn't have have heard of before so I would really encourage people to go over and and and, and watch it um because I think it really is a fantastic pod thanks so much for your time today and um yeah all the best with getting over here in 2024 if you do manage to make it then give us a shout and I'll definitely come for a pint sounds good Laura thanks for having us on cheers I'm glad to see the podcast growing it's going really well thanks very much cheers <laughs>